We're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 21 and the beginning of 1 Samuel 22 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there or the scripture is also printed in the bulletin on page 7 with a place to take notes on page 8. Give ear now as I read God's word. Then David came to Nob, to Abimelech the priest, I'm sorry, Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, why, why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever's here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us, as always when I go out on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, then have you not a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it's here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And, his, and the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David the king of the land? Didn't they sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? So this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizbah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold, 
depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. This is God's word. Well, I think as we've already even talked about this morning, life as we know it is filled with difficulty, right? I mean, sometimes the difficulties are catastrophic. More often than that, though, it feels like it's like a little drip of a faucet. You know, it's smaller things that are frustrating and that get they sort of crawl under our skin. You know, and life is filled with things that do that. You know, sometimes, again, it's the big thing. Sometimes it's small irritations. The Bible actually says that our lives often feel like a wilderness. Okay? Now, not wilderness in the sense, when I think of wilderness, a lot of times I think about the forest. You know, the wilderness is a forest. But when the Bible talks about it, it's talking about a desert. Okay? It's talking about a desert. I just want to ask, like metaphorically, does your life feel like a desert sometimes? Feel like you're wandering around maybe aimlessly, you're parched, you're dry. You don't feel like you have enough resources to actually do what you need to do. You don't know where your next refreshment is going to be. I mean, oftentimes we feel tired. You know, we just we struggle. We feel dried out. Sometimes we feel hopeless. I'm glad the Bible describes life like this because it's just honest. Right? It's honest about what we should expect from life. Life is the wilderness. It's a desert wandering. But I'm also glad because in the Bible, the desert, the wilderness, it's a midpoint. Okay? The desert's a midpoint. It's, it's the middle stage between freedom and fulfillment. Okay? In the Bible, you think about the, the story of the Exodus. Right? The freedom that came with the Exodus that led to the fulfillment where people got to enter into the promised land? Well, the road from Egypt to the promised land went through the desert. And the Bible describes God setting his people free and then bringing them through the wilderness of the desert, right? bringing them through the desert all the way to the promised land. And so this is the line that our lives are tracing. Freedom, wilderness, and promised land. That describes our lives. And so this life, really, our lives, are the desert wanderings on our way to that perfected world that God has promised to bring all of his people to. Now, put in that context, I get kind of excited, right? I mean, that that gives me hope that I've left something, I'm on the way to something. But the question is, how do we deal with life in the desert? Right? Our lives are long. The Bible says sometimes 60 years, 70, 80 if you're strong. How do you deal with this? Like, what is, how do you handle the frustrations and the problems? I mean, this is what David is wrestling through in our text. Okay, as we look and and read this portion of the story, David is in between. He's running away from Saul. He's got this promise that he's going to be the next king. But what we find him here, we find him running. He's in the wilderness. He's wrestling with a life that doesn't seem to fit into God's promises yet. Okay, and what, what David shows us is that in the midst of the wilderness of life, you need to go to God. Okay? Bottom line, what we're going to see today is that in the wilderness of life, you need to go to God. You need to seek the Lord anywhere and everywhere. And when you do that, God gives you his assurance. And when you have his assurance, it doesn't matter where life takes you. It really doesn't. No matter where you go, no matter how hard things get, 
life is not just bearable, but you can triumph in life. And so we're going to see that this morning. We're going to see that in three points. We're going to see first, these are the points that are on your outline. You need to go to God in the morning. Okay. Second, you need to go to God when you're afraid. And then third, you need to go to God when he blesses you. So first, you go to God in the morning. This is verses 1 to 9 in chapter 21. David is fleeing from Saul. We've seen that in the previous chapters. But he makes this quick stop on his way out. Okay, Nob is just a couple miles from where Saul was and where he interacted with Jonathan. And so really what David's doing is on his way out, he goes to church. He goes to where the priest is. And he seeks out the priest. He's in a hurry, but he doesn't want to leave without going to God first. Okay, he wants to begin his flight going to God. And it's interesting. Oftentimes we're going to see, and we're going to see this later even in our passage, David goes to God through prayer. We're going to talk about that in our second point. But there's something assuring about getting support and encouragement from the church. Right? David goes to the priest, the person who stands in between God and his people, so that he can hear a word from God. So he can hear the one that God has anointed to stand in his place and speak on his behalf. And there's something assuring about that, right? You have friends that have done that for you, pastors, leaders, and just in relationships where people give you that assurance, and it means something, right? It goes beyond sometimes what you get simply from going on your own into the presence of God. And I think, in fact, this is something that, as you've experienced that, you can also do that for others. Okay, David goes to the priest for encouragement, but the Bible says that everyone who believes in God has God's spirit, has the ability to share his blessings and his assurance with others. You know, Paul says this, if you, if you look in Romans 15, 14, he says this, I am satisfied about you, that you are filled with goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. It's interesting. Paul says that's true for every Christian. So you can share with people God's blessings. You can remind them of God's promises and his word. I mean, really, you just need to be willing to share what you know about God, what you've experienced, and even the things that you've done that have worked out and given you comfort in the midst of your difficulties. I mean, when you do that, in a sense, you give God's blessing to people just like the priest was blessing David. I had a friend tell me just a couple weeks ago, he said, we were talking, and he said, you know, if I'm ever interested in learning more about Christianity, can I just come and talk to you? Sure, absolutely, right? And, I mean, all I had done with this, with this friend of mine was, as we would talk and just interact, whenever he would bring up things that dealt with how he views life, I'd just share with him how I view my life. You know, how, how God teaches us how to view life. And he's gotten to the point where he's attracted enough to where he's at least at that stage. And he's saying, well, look, if I'm ever interested, and I'm thinking, I hope you're interested, I think you're interested right now, you know, let's, you know, but I'm, tr- I'm trying to be patient. But, I mean, that's just kind of how it works, right? Not just with people who don't know Christ, but even in the church. We need each other. And oftentimes, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, we need the Christ in each other in order for us to be healthy. And to get encouragement. And so, so David goes to the priest 
for encouragement, and God answers David through the priest. Okay, David gets from the priest this holy bread. Okay, he gets the holy bread. This is bread, you can look it up in Leviticus chapter 24. It describes how the bread was supposed to be just for the priests. It was holy, it was sanctified, it was just for the priests, and yet David is given it. The priest says, okay, well, as long as y'all are ceremonially clean, you can also, you can have the bread. And what's interesting about the bread is it's called, um, it's called, it's called the bread of the presence, verse 6. It's the bread of the presence. And the idea here was this was special bread. There were 12 loaves of it inside the tabernacle where God was worshipped by his people, where God dwelt. And this bread was symbolic of God's presence. Okay, the idea was one loaf for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And God is saying by that bread being there that, you know what, we are together, that my presence is truly here. And so David is getting assurance by getting this bread that God's presence is with him. Now, I think sometimes when we think about God, depending on what you're thinking about God, God's presence may not be very encouraging, right? Just because God is in your presence doesn't necessarily mean good news, right? I mean, what if God is coming in judgment, right? What if God is coming with his perfect law and is about to evaluate how well you've done, right? That's not good news. The, bread of the, you know, the, the presence of God in that case would probably be something that would cause me to flee, cause me to run away. But this is bread of the presence, okay? And the idea of bread, back then in the ancient Near East, bread was what you served at a meal, right? Not much different from today. But what's different is that to have a meal with someone meant you were treating them like family, Okay, and so what is happening here is that God is giving David, through the priest, bread that specially says to David, you are family. I am your God. And not just your God, but I am your father. And you are my son. Do you need to hear that today? Do you wish we had bread that we could offer you that would convince you that God's presence was with you, that he indeed is your father and that you're his child? This bread does point us forward to when we observe the Lord's Supper. When we break the bread and pour out the the juice and the wine at at the Lord's table, God is saying the same thing. God is saying, I am with you. You are my child and I am your father. And so there's great encouragement when we come and we seek out. This is the good news that we hear when we come to God in his church. We come to God in his church. Now, what's the deal here with the lie? Right? Y'all catch that? You reading through that? Is David lying here? There was one author who said David doesn't actually lie because if you look in verses 2 and 8, he describes his mission as being from the king. doesn't actually name Saul, right? And so what David's really saying is the king, meaning the king of kings, right? God has sent me on this mission. So he's not really lying. I think that's interesting, but I think it's stretching it. Um, I think David does lie. He does lie to the priest. David lies to the people in Gath later on in our passage, okay? He's lying. um, And so what's the deal with that? Like, how does that work? I mean, is that right? Is that, is that 
something that we should do. Um, I think what we need to understand when it comes to this kind of lying is that Saul had declared war on David. Okay? Saul was after David's life. And I guess we could ask it this way. If you knew that a priest or a pastor would be killed because he helped you, if you told him the truth, would you tell him the truth? I think what David's doing here is David is protecting the priest. Right? He's withholding the truth from the priest so that the priest can say to Saul, I didn't know. Because David knows if he tells him the truth, hey, I'm running away from Saul. I am, you know, Saul's after my life. He wants to kill me. And if you help me, uh, he'll probably kill you too. Uh, so could you help me? I think David is trying to save the priest and, tr- and trying to protect the priest. In times of war, the Bible says that it's okay to lie. Okay? In Joshua chapter 2, there's a, a prostitute, Rahab, who actually has, who has genuine faith. And she comes into God's family and she lies to protect God's spies. She lies to the king. And she's not only not taken the task for that lie, but she's actually blessed for it. Her whole family is saved because of it. And in James chapter 2 in the New Testament, she is exalted for it, for her lie. In times of war, uh, it's okay. It's appropriate to lie um, at times. Okay? And we could talk a lot more about that, um, but we're not going to do that right now. Um, you can come and ask me about it afterwards if you'd like. But the same thing happens in Gath, where David lies to protect himself by acting insane. Okay? And so, again, you have a time, you have a situation of war. You have people that are you know, at war, and reality is that in war, deception is just part of the game. Right? It's part of the rules of engagement. And so, and God doesn't frown on that. Now, this isn't a lie. This isn't a license to lie whenever you want. Okay? So just because they do this during this particular point in time, during a wartime situation, doesn't mean that you can lie whenever you feel like it's beneficial to you. Um, usually when I lie inappropriately, um, I'm lying to get out of being caught in something. You know, I'm usually trying to protect my own reputation. I'm usually trying to get ahead. I'm usually trying to keep somebody thinking positively about me and not wanting to give the truth. Those are, and those are not appropriate times to lie, okay? And so this isn't licensed to lie. But when it comes to protecting life against God's enemies, then there are times when it's appropriate uh, to lie. Okay, so... Again, so David, in this case, is hoping to protect the priest. And I say hoping because if you look at verse 7, <laughs> verse 7 causes us to wince a little bit. You know, it's, one author said this, The literary camera turns to show the briefest clip of the narrowed eyes and curled lip of Doeg the Edomite, Saul's henchman. You see, here's one of the minions of Saul. You know, it's kind of like... Um, I, don't know, I was thinking about what movie I could say that would be universally understandable. Jaws, you know, it, it was kind of what came to mind, where you got people playing out in the ocean, and then all of a sudden you kind of hear the music, da, 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 da. and then you see the fin come up over the, you know, it's, it's off, it's way off in the distance, but you see it, right? The fin comes up out of the water and it goes back down, and you're thinking, uh oh, what's going to happen? That's verse 7 here in our story. What's Doeg going to do? We don't find out till later. So that's all you get. That's all you get. You can read ahead if you'd like. So David flees. 
he sought the blessing of the priest. Um, and he's got assurance that God will be with him. And again, before we leave David with the priest, we do well to follow David's example. Okay, we ought to seek the Lord in the morning. Literally, at the beginning of our day, it's a good thing to seek God and to be reassured of his blessing. But then metaphorically, when trials are coming, when you're at the outset of something difficult, it is good to seek the Lord early. It's good to seek the Lord at the beginning of those kinds of things when they come in life because that's the only way you'll get through. That's the only way you'll get through. So go to God in the morning. Our second point, go to God when you're afraid. Go to God when you're afraid. This is verses 10 to 15. So David flees to Gath. Now, this is odd to me. When I was first reading this, I'm thinking, what in the world is going on here? Gath was a city of the Philistines. Okay, the Philistines were the arch enemies of Israel. They were at war constantly. And David shows up. Now, Gath also was the city where someone lived, right? Someone we've already met in the story. Anybody know? Goliath. Goliath was the, lived in Gath. And so here you have David showing up to Goliath's home, right? In Goliath's town with Goliath's sword, right? He asks for the sword from, from the priest. What? <laughs> Is he crazy? I mean, it's kind of funny, actually, because you think he's crazy, and then he actually goes insane. And some commentators have literally said David actually went insane, that he wasn't acting. And it seems like if he's showing up in, the, in this town with this sword, you might be able to make a case for that. But I think the answer is no, he's not crazy. What's David doing? David wants to establish an alliance with an enemy of Saul. Okay? He's on the run, he's running from Saul, and he figures that the people of Gath would think any enemy of Saul is a friend of ours. Okay, and so now we know why David wanted Goliath's sword. Okay, he didn't really catch it. It was kind of hard to understand why when he was talking to the priest, but he wanted the sword so he could return it as a show of his opposition to Saul and his rule. Okay, this is like a peace offering. Okay, he's trying to appease the people of Gath. He wanted to be seen as a defector. And so he shows up and he says, hey, look, the trophy that Israel has kept, the trophy that, that we have kept as a sign of our dominance over you, I'm going to give it back to you because I want peace. So that's David's plan going in. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. The servants of the king, the servants of Achish, they kind of either see through it or they just don't trust him. And so David is put into custody. If you look at verse 13, um, it says, So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. Okay? In their hands means in their custody. They took David and they imprisoned him. They imprisoned him. And it was to the point where verse 12 says that David was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. He was much afraid. And so what does David do? It's interesting because he does something before he goes insane. What does David do? He goes to God. David goes to God in his fear. He goes to God with his fear. He prayed and he met with God. And he wrote Psalm 56. The psalm that we did in our confession was a psalm that David wrote. It says at the very top, 
when the Philistines seized him in Gath. This is kind of interesting, right? Some of the Psalms actually have historical setting to them where something was going on in the psalmist's life and this is the expression of their hearts. And so we actually get to see what David was thinking. We get to see how David reacted when they put their hands on him and put him into custody. Psalm 56 is what he wrote during his captivity in Gath. Let me just read you bits and pieces of it. We've already recited some of it. But listen to what David says in fear of his life, right? They could kill him. They should kill him. You know, if they know, you know, David's killed 10,000s and the 10,000s he's killed are Philistines, right? So David's in a bad way. And this is what David says. He says, be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long, an attacker oppresses me. All day long, they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps. And they are waiting for my life. You, O God, have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back. In the day when I call, this I know, that God is for me. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling. That I may walk before God in the light of life. When David was afraid for his life, when David was convinced that they could kill him at any moment, this was the cry of his heart. He went to God. And for David, praying was an exercise in remembering God's promises, right? Remembering what God had done for him in the past. And it was also a chance for, God, for David to say, God, we have a relationship here. Right? You're my father. I'm your son. Like, I, I need some connection with you. And in that activity, in that process of, of going to God, of talking to God, of pouring out his heart, he gets assurance. He gets assurance. He gets hope. He gets confidence. This is what prayer does. When you go to God in prayer, this is what happens. And I know this, I mean, I know this in my own life. I mean, my own, when I think about my own fears, like there are times where I think myself into oblivion, <laughs> you know, where the fear starts and then I give into it and then I start thinking, oh my goodness, what's going to happen here? What's going to happen to the church? What's going to happen to the ministry? What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my reputation? What's going to happen? And all of a sudden I think, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do, right? And I'm gone. It's, it's over. Like I'm just, I'm out and I'm completely ineffective. I am... I'm scared. I'm scared. When I'm in that place, usually the only thing that brings me out is going to God and saying, God, I'm terrified. God, I don't know what to do. I mean, for me, I get to the point sometimes where even the promises like don't help. Like remembering the scriptures don't help. There's something about going to God and saying, God, I am in trouble here. 
And when that happens, I feel like what I'm doing is I'm explaining my fears. I've been doing this over the last week or so. I've been thinking through what my fears really are. You know, and because and, I've been reading the Psalms and, and seeing how David's always talking about his enemies. I'm thinking, well, I don't feel like I have a whole lot of enemies. You know, I don't know people that are against me, you know, particularly. And then I started realizing, you know, I feel like my enemies are my fears. You know, my fears about not knowing enough to be a good pastor or by not knowing the best way to lead the church or, you know, the best way to help connect with people or help people understand the truth of the scriptures. I mean, I, I get afraid of these things. And usually for me now what I'm doing is I, I go into the presence of God and I say, God, here's what I'm afraid of. And as I do that, I feel like I'm bringing God into the room with my fears. I try to name my fears, and as I do it, they feel big and huge and monstrous, and they grow in the telling. And then I say, God, you are my God, and I am your son. And it's like I'm inviting God into the room with my fear. And all of a sudden, these things don't matter so much anymore. Because I know God is going to care for me. I know he's going to take care of me. I know that God's got a different perspective than I do about these things I'm afraid of. And I just stop and I realize, God, you're the only one I care about, really. Like, I care about your opinion more than anything else. And I'm not really interested in success as much as I'm interested in pleasing you. And as I do that, I feel like my fears just sort of shrink. And they go back to, they, they sort of get back into their proper place, you know. It's like the Wizard of Oz where the curtain is torn back and you got this little old man behind there and he's running this machine. And it's like, I believe the machine, you know, the big loud voice and really the fear when God is in the room with me, it just gets small. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, this is how prayer works, right? And, and when that happens, I think about 1 John 4.18 because there's a promise, it says there's no fear in love. And that's helpful. But then I think, well, wait a minute. If I'm, if I'm afraid, does that mean I'm not loved by God? But then the next, the next line comes in and it's really helpful. It says, but perfect love casts out fear. And that's what we do. When we go to God with our fears and we lay them before him and we talk about him in his presence, what happens is then, we, remind, we remember the love of God. The God, he comes into our presence and he is loving, he cares. And when we remember that, all of a sudden the fear scatters. And that's what 1 John says. 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. That's good news. That's good news. I think this is one of the places where God becomes real. You know, there's all kinds of evidence for God, lots of arguments that, that explain that God is real, but I think he becomes incredibly real to me in that moment where I invite him in with my fears and I see him work. I see him work. So this is what David does in Psalm 56. Now here's what's interesting is that when David's done praying this psalm, he doesn't open his eyes and see that the gates are open wide, right? He's still stuck. He's still in custody. And it's interesting because this is kind of what happens. God gives him assurance of his presence, but doesn't take him out of the difficult situation. 
in a sense, God says, look, David, I'm going to be with you no matter what you do. And I'm going to be with you no matter what you do. No matter what. And I'm going to leave it up to you to figure out how you're going to get out of this. And so David uses his wits. He brings his intelligence to bear on the situation, and he acts insane. This is David's plan to get out. And it's actually brilliant. It's brilliant. One thing you probably don't know, I didn't know this until I read it this week, was that in the ancient world, insanity, it was looked at with sort of a, a measure of awe. Okay, because people didn't really understand it. You know, and there was so much where someone would have a spirit come over them, you know, and so people didn't know, is this, is this craziness? Is this something mystical? Is this something God thing going on here? And it caused them to sort of back off. It caused them to be concerned. Like, we don't want to be fighting against whatever's going on inside of here. If there's a God or, a, or some kind of spirit that's more powerful than us, we don't want to mess with that. And so David, in a sense... He took on this this role of insanity, and it made them it made him less likely to harm the king. It made him less likely to harm the people in Philistia. And essentially, they evaluated him as harmless. That's what that's what Achish says. Like, why have you brought him here? Don't I have enough crazy people? And you wonder if he's talking about his his servants, you know, because <laughs> you guys are the ones who brought him here. What's going on, you know? And uh, um, and so he says, all right. So he lets him go. He lets David go because he renders him harmless. And so it's interesting because what we see here is that David triumphs again over the Philistines, right? Not by sword. In the first time, it was by a sling and a stone. And in this time, it's by going to the Lord. In both times, it was going to the Lord. But in this time, it was really, it was his wits um, that freed him from the clutches of the Philistines. And what's interesting is that in the midst of this, in the midst of the terror, in the midst of the fear that David dealt with, not only did God come and say, I'm with you, but God also made it really clear to David from the mouth of pagans that he's going to be king. Right? I mean, you look in verse 11. The servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David the king of the land? I mean, David wasn't the king yet. And yet, I guess outside of the land, people thought of him as the one who's going to take over or even the one who was already in power. It's kind of interesting. And through that, God is saying, David, look, be patient. I know you're in the wilderness, but trust me. Trust me, the fulfillment is coming. And I just want to ask, is, any, is God saying that to any of you today? Is God saying to you right now, look, I know you're in the wilderness, but just trust me. Fulfillment is coming. You just need to be patient. When fear rises up, we need to go to God when we're afraid. Okay, our third and last point is that you need to go to God when he blesses you. When he blesses you. This is verses 1 to 5 of chapter 22. So you need to go to God when he blesses you. We, we forget this sometimes, right? I mean, when the danger comes, when the fear rises up, we go crying out to the Lord, God, please help me. Please save me. Please don't let this happen to me. Please let me get this promotion. Please let me have this relationship. But then when he answers, oh, I forgot. You know, and, you, and maybe now you're even remembering, oh, shoot, I didn't remember to thank God for that. 
that he just did this week. I mean, we kind of do that, right? I mean, we forget to go back to him when he answers or the tension resolves. We just sort of forget and we move on. And I think, and I'll just say it, I think sometimes this shows us where our hearts really are. Okay? When we don't go back and thank God, I think often what we're saying is, and again, sorry to step on toes, that we really don't want God. We just want his blessings. I mean, we need to be careful about this, right? I mean, do you know anybody who, who, who you, you ever cared about someone who's been in a relationship with someone else who's just abusive, right? And, and maybe not physically abusive or even verbally or emotionally, but just seems to use them up, like to use them one, you know, up one side, down the other. You know, they've been in a relationship that's really, really destructive where it's all about what this other person can get from the relationship, right? I mean what advice do you give to that person you care about, right? You tell them, you need to get out of this. You need to stop. This isn't real love. This isn't a real relationship. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, ouch. Like, that's kind of what we do to God. We use him for what we want and then forget him when we get it. You know, we, t- we turn God into the cosmic genie. You know, we tell people, oh, God's not a cosmic genie. You need to actually know him. You need to actually deal business with him. He's not up there just for your whim. And yet, it seems sometimes like our prayer life is all about, God, please give us the stuff. And then when he does, we forget him. I think, too, here's what's interesting, is that it's not just a good thing to make sure that you want God and not just the blessing that you're asking for. Um, but it's also, it's also the, it's not just the right thing, but it's the good thing. Okay. Because if you have a relationship with God, even, I mean, this Christians are not both Christians and non-Christians do this to God. So I'm not just picking on non-Christians here because we all do this, but when you have that kind of relationship with God, the kind of satisfaction in life that you get also I mean, what am I trying to say? Each approach to God, whether you want God or his blessings, the satisfaction that you get from that relationship with God will show what you really want, okay? Because if you're satisfied with just getting the blessings from God, then you'll be happy until you need something else or you want something else, right? So you'll be happy only, you know, until you pray again, right? God, now I want this. God, now I want that. Right? And now all of a sudden your happiness is gone. But if you're satisfied because when you went to God, he came near to you. If you're satisfied with God because he's God and he knows you. That's a satisfaction that lasts literally forever. Because that's a real relationship that doesn't go away. And so David is, I mean, is in this, in this place now. He's in the cave of Adullam, okay, in chapter 22. He's escaped to this cave. It's sort of in between the land of the Philistines and the land of Judah. <clears throat> and he's there. And what is God telling him through all the events of these first five verses? God is saying, look, David, you need to know, let me give you assurance again that you will be king. Okay, because what God does is God brings him the beginnings of an army. 
Okay, he brings them the beginnings of an army. Look at verse 2. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to David. They came to him and he became captain over them. And the men numbered 400. So there's probably a lot more than just the 400 men. But his army now is at 400. Seems kind of like a bad group of people to start with, doesn't it? I mean, I'm not sure. David's sitting there. Oh, my. Like, do you really? <laughs> God, am I, I'm going to be the king, but king of what? <laughs> um, <clears throat> I don't think these are just the people who are mad at life. Okay, I think this is a specific group of people who are actually mad at Saul. Okay, it's interesting. Distressed and debt and bitter. This reminds me of 1 Samuel chapter 8. Okay, 1 Samuel chapter 8. At the very beginning of Israel's desire to have a king in the first place, Samuel warns the people of what the king will do. In 1 Samuel 8, verses 11 to 17, here's what Samuel says the king's going to do. He says, Here will be the ways that the king will reign over you. He'll take your sons, appoint him to his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war, and the equipment of his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He'll take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He'll take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves That's what the king is going to do. And what we see here in our passage is that that's exactly what's been happening. This is what Saul has been doing. And these people are, they're dying. They're, they're, they're in debt to the king. They're in distress because of the king. And they're bitter in soul because their life, it's, you know, they're sitting there thinking, boy, this was not how it was supposed to be. Right? And they longed for a new life. And now finally they got a choice. Finally there's someone, there's a rival. Finally there's someone that can lead them into a new, into a new life. And so God is telling David here, look, you're on the right track. Okay? You are following me and you're experiencing the beginnings of new life. You know, you've dealt with your fear right? You've sought me and you've gotten the blessing from the priest. You've got the blessing from this other king. Um, in terms of Moab, you're experiencing the beginnings of new life. And it is so real that people are beginning to believe in you and they're coming. Okay. You're living this new life. And even though you're out in the wilderness, people are coming to you because they want what you have. And God is saying, this is how I'm going to raise you up to be king. This is the beginning. And I think, gosh, there's no better picture. With David and his followers in this cave, there's no better picture of Jesus. I mean, this is a clear picture of Jesus. And Jesus, when he comes, not only 
in, you know, when he was living on earth. But even now, Jesus is coming today and he's offering you the same thing. Jesus is saying, are you tired of the life that you're living? Are you tired? The poor, the disenfranchised, the bitter of soul, they all crowded around Jesus because he seemed to have something different. He was offering something better. And these weren't just the folks on the lower end of the economic scale. Okay, it wasn't just the poor that went to Jesus. It was also those who were poor in spirit. People that were sick of life, that were bitter in their soul. Anybody who was tired of living for money, tired of living for their career, enslaved to the tyranny of relationships or of approval, right? I mean, these are all things that make us bitter in soul, right? That cause us distress when there's stuff in our lives that controls us. I mean, that is what brings us ruin. That's what makes this life feel like a wilderness. And at the base, at the base of it, the folks who came to David, the folks who came to Jesus, both then when he lived and also today, are people who are tired of being ruled by their sin. I think we all know, if we're honest, that there's parts of us that are wayward. Right? There's parts of us, there's things that we do, there's thoughts that we have, there's relationships that we live in that don't produce life. They don't produce you know, psychological health that don't produce good in the world. I mean, these things, these are things that we also know that don't honor God. And in our good moments, we think we ought to break free from these things, but we just don't. You know, whether it's our whole life or it's just different pieces or individual sections of our lives that we spend bowing down to something else or living in a way that we know we shouldn't, I mean, these are the things that control us. And so it's either that we're scared to give them up. Sometimes we don't know how to give them up or sometimes we just don't want to. Right? We'd much rather have the passing pleasure or the passing satisfaction that these things bring. And I guess I just, I just want to say that it's living in sin that makes you bitter in soul. It's living in sin that makes you poor in spirit. It's living in these ways that we know don't produce good that causes distress. And that debt that we incur actually ends up being a spiritual debt because ultimately someone has to pay at the throne of God's justice. Ultimately, we're going to stand before God and we're going to have to give an account. But this is why Jesus came. Okay, this. It's this that Jesus calls us away from. This is why Jesus says, Come to me, everyone who is burdened down, and I'll give you rest. Jesus says, No matter what it is, no matter what is burdening you, come. Come and set your burdens down. Go free from this. Turn from your sin and follow me. I mean, all of your sin is actually what sent Jesus to the cross. All of my sin is why he hung there. He didn't do any of the stuff he died for. And yet he was paying the penalty. He was paying the price 
for our sins so that we could go free. And in his resurrection from the dead, we see, we see that there's life beyond this stuff. There's power to overcome it. There's power to be freed from it. And when you come to Jesus, he pays your debt. He pays for your sins. And then he sets you free. And so you can have forgiveness and freedom. And again, if it's the first time or if it's the 101st time, you can experience the freedom of Jesus if you come and trust that he will set you free, that his resurrection power raises you to new life. When you seek God, I mean, that's how it all happens, right? It starts with you going to God. Go to him in the morning. Go to him this morning. You go to him in your fear, and you go to him when he blesses you. And these are the things that cause you to experience this real life. And it'll draw other people to Jesus too. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for calling us. Thank you for drawing us to yourself. We see you. You lived the wilderness of this life for us. You dealt with all of the garbage you were around it and then you died for it you took it on god help us help us to come to jesus if there are people here who haven't done that yet lord would you draw them help them to see that in the death and resurrection of jesus they can go free from what binds them and father i pray that for those who are christians here if there are areas of their lives that they have been giving themselves over to fear or to sin, that you'd help them to come to Jesus with those things too, and that you'd set them free, that you'd let your power run wild in their lives, and that by knowing you and bringing you and your love into their lives, into that area of their lives, that you would set them free. Do this so that we might bless others. Do this so that we could live a life in whole and healed relationship with you, so that we'd have something to offer the folks around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.